Welcome to Bluegrass Stories with Katie Daly and me, I'm Howard Parker. Can there be a bluegrass fan or collector that does not own a CD, LP, or track from the iconic Rebel Records? We think not. Originally owned and founded by Dick Freeland in 1960, the label found a willing buyer in 1979 as County Records and County Sales owner Dave Freeman picked up the label's mantle. Today, Dave's son, Mark Freeman, carries the Rebel Records legacy forward. In this episode, Ms. Katie Daly talks with Rebel Records owner, Mark Freeman. My father bought Rebel, like I said, in the late 70s. Dick Freeland was, was ready to get out of the, the record label business by then, he had started Rebel in 1960, mostly as a boutique label for a lot of a lot of the folks there in the Delmarva, D.C. area, who were, you know, bluegrass pickers. They, you know, they had uh, they had moved to that area from from parts of the South, and Dick uh, had started the label to to record a lot of these groups. But um, initially, it was it was meant to be, like I said, a boutique label label and no no visions of you know national distribution and all that but things fell into place you know he 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 signed the country gentlemen who were a rising group at the time that was 1961 or 62 that um that he he uh signed the country gentlemen and they released their their first album with Rebel in nineteen the following year, nineteen sixty three, bringing Mary home, which obviously became a, a really big uh, hit, a big smash, and that that kept the label going. Um, and then from there, um, you know, groups like uh, Bill Emerson and Cliff Waldron and Benny Valley Kane and um, Walter Hensley. Um, just really started growing throughout the 60s. Right. And, Buck Ryan, um, Curly Buck Ray Ryan. Klein. Mm-hmm. Right. Even Red Allen. You know, <clears throat> Red didn't release any full albums with Rebel, but he did release some 45 singles mm-hmm. uh, when he was there in the area. So it was, um, it just started picking up, picking up steam throughout the 60s. And reading the history on your website, there were about 100 albums released by Rebel from 70 to 79. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. That sounds right. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. Well, 70, the, the 70s, I would say, were um, really a, a, a big, big period. That's when Rebel really became key leading independent bluegrass label that, um, yes. that people know of today. Because in, in 1971, Dick uh, signed Ralph Stanley, which was just uh, obviously a major boost for the label. Ralph had just left um, Stardate Records. You know, by by the late 60s, Rebel had gotten to the point where an artist like Ralph Stanley could, you know, say, "Hey, um, I'm going to take a chance with Rebel Records because they're they're focusing on bluegrass." Um, they're an up-and-coming label, and <clears throat> Dick recorded uh, Ralph starting in the early 70s, and then right around that same time, the seldom scene formed. You know, uh, John Duffy had left the country gentleman. The scene recorded their first album 
just the, the following year after Ralph put out his first album, the Cry From The Cross album. Mm-hmm. So just within that two or three year period in the early 70s, like 71 to 73, you had Ralph and the Selden scene who both uh, just, um, just, you know, put, put Rebel Records into another stratosphere in terms of um, prestige. Right. So, and, and then uh, um, your dad um, sort of changed things a little bit by upgrading, you know, like it used to be the album covers were always a picture of a cabin on, you know, right. up on a hill and maybe some horses grazing. I mean, they were very generic. You could, wouldn't even be able to tell who was on the album. And that all changed right. when your dad took over. So number one was the graphics was a big change. That's right, right. I think, I think Dick relied on just a lot of um, friends of his to, to design the, the album artwork. By the end of, of Dick's tenure, the, the artwork um, for, for a lot of the records were eh, left a lot to be desired. Let's put it that way. Um, right. And, and, and I think that was part of, of Dick's, Dick's um, burnout, so to speak, because he had started the label in 1960. It was almost 20 years that he was running the label. And mm-hmm. um, he was ready for a change, and he knew my he knew my dad really well because my dad, with county sales, would order a lot of Rebel LPs, you know, for for the for the store for county sales for mail order. And uh, he he approached my dad and said, you know, would you be interested in in, in buying me out with Rebel? And um, they agreed to a, a price that uh, was fair for both of them, and yeah. My my dad started, um, or he took over Rebel in in, in uh, 1980, and uh, one of the first one of the first releases my dad put out with Rebel was um, Larry Sparks' John Deere Tractor album. Ah, uh-huh, okay. So that was a nice <laughs> nice start for my dad um, to to release an iconic iconic album like John Deere Tractor. Um, yes. Larry, Larry had been recording for King Bluegrass, not to be confused with King Starday out of Cincinnati. You know, King Bluegrass was a bluegrass label out of uh, Lexington, Kentucky. And Larry had been recording a few albums for, for them. And Dick Freeland, one of the last things he did before selling Rebel was he bought out the King Bluegrass label. And King Bluegrass had had um, one of Tony Rice's early albums and had a couple of boys from Indiana albums. So it was, it was a, a very respectable label itself. But, um, but Rebel bought out King Bluegrass. And right after that, Dick sold the label to, to my dad. So in a short time, you know, dad was, was signing new groups, but at the same time also – you know, getting a lot of those albums from the King Bluegrass label that fell into his lap. He was, um, you know, repackaging those and re-releasing them with new artwork and graphics and stuff. So another change that came along a little bit after that was um, the music industry is really going through a change, going from vinyl to compact disc. Mm-hmm. That's right. And that too. And so mm-hmm. when he was re-releasing these, uh, were they going? Also on vinyl, or was he releasing them on CDs? We released the first CDs in mid '80s, '85, '86. So, so my dad had had been running the label for about five years when when uh, CDs came around. 
uh, which mm-hmm. was a good thing because me and my dad, I guess, you know, by then, after five years, he was comfortable with, with the label and, and releasing, you know, um, he was probably, Rebel was probably releasing uh, 10 to 15 albums a year in the, you know, in the 80s, early 80s. And then when, yeah, when the CDs, uh, when CDs were introduced, there was a period there for a couple of years where we would release a new project, both on LP and CD. Mm-hmm. But when CDs were, were introduced, you know, Dad um, took advantage of our catalog and, you know, did a lot of uh, compilations, like, you know, Best of Seldom Seen, Best of Country Gentlemen. You know, he took a lot of, rather than releasing all of their albums on CD initially, you know, he, he rounded up what he felt were the, the strongest cuts from some of those big groups. And, um, you know, put out like, you know, cl- the classic bluegrass series is what we called it. So we had the Ralph Stanley classic bluegrass, Del McCurry classic bluegrass, seldom seen best of country gentlemen. So, you know, initially we got a lot of those big artists, those key artists, you know, available on CD, some of their best work. And then we slowly started re-releasing their albums on CD. Mm-hmm. So, now, are are those compilation collections? Are they still available? Are they still in print? And um, we're actually the 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 best of the seldom scene is, and the country gentleman twenty five years is. We're slowly starting to to phase out the other ones, like Ross Stanley Classic Bluegrass. We still have some copies left, but I think once those run out, we probably won't repackage those or re-release those because mm-hmm. we've, you know, in that time we've, we've put out, you know, a number of like Ralph Stanley compilations that are available at a lower price point. So it's, it's kind of redundant to keep that classic bluegrass CD in print mm-hmm. when there's other collections with basically the, the similar songs, but at a, at a lower price. Right. So we'll be, we'll be phasing some of those out, but like the, the, Film scene, best of. That's still a great seller. I mean, it's been, it's been what over thirty years since that wow. that CD came out, and it's still uh, a consistent seller. So, as long as they keep selling, we'll we'll keep we'll keep uh, keep them in print. <laughs> now, do you do the printing uh, right at your location, or is that I don't know anything about the record company? Mm-hmm business is that something you send out to be done or how how does that work right well we have we currently have um we work with two different pressing plants one in pennsylvania and one in uh minneapolis that press our cds and in terms of like the the artwork you know we don't do the artwork in-house i have a i have a stable of about three or four graphic designers that you know, depending on the project, I'll I'll farm a, a certain project out to a certain designer, and mm-hmm. you know, it takes you know it takes about usually it, it takes about a week for um you know if I send a graphic designer the album title and a in a, a picture or a couple uh, picture options for for a cover photo, usually it takes a graphic designer about a week for for him or or her to present me with four or five different options for cover ideas and once you know once we make a decision on the cover 
then, you know, then they move forward with the rest of the package. And usually the rest of the package just takes a matter of days, you know, once we, once we decide on a, on a cover for a project. So it's a pretty quick turnaround. It is. It can be, if I've got all the, 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 the pieces from the artist, and when I say pieces, that's like the pictures, the credits, liner notes, you know, if we're going to include liner notes in a record, if I've got all those uh, parts ready, it could take two weeks, maybe three weeks from, from start to finish in terms of having a concept in mind to getting the artwork over to the pressing plant so that they can start pressing the CDs. Mm-hmm. And then and it how takes... Many, mm-hmm. How many do you print? Is that deter- what determines how many you print at one time at a pressing? Right. Well, it... You know, it depends on the artist. If it's um, if it's a new artist, we'll usually do less, just because you know the artist is is unfamiliar with folks and you know is basically an unproven talent. But obviously, mm-hmm. if it's a Ralph Staley or a Larry Sparks, we're going to press up more initially than a High Fidelity or something like that, because obviously Larry and Ralph have that name recognition, so we can we can count on those extra sales. So uh, you mentioned High Fidelity, and we're recording this in June, the start of June. I think you're releasing one of their albums at uh, High Fidelity at the end of this week. Mm-hmm. Am I right? That's right. So, on Friday, mm-hmm. yep, their second release for Rebel. Uh, so yeah. what do you have to do to get it ready to go? I mean, you have to get their press agent and all that stuff? Right. What's, your, right. what's well, on your checklist? Right. Well, you know, we work with a, a publicist for the group. The group has a publicist. We're working with them to to get the press release together and ready to go out. She's already sent her own kind of press release to her list of uh, media folks. She sent that out today. And we'll, we'll send out a, a press release from Rebel Records um, on Friday, the street date, you know, basically, you know, talking about the album and hyping up the band. And um, we'll also include a video. That's another thing that's changed in the last 10 or 15 years. More and more labels are, are doing videos to support a group or a release than they did, you know, maybe 15, 20 years ago. Uh, we've just started doing more videos in the last three to four years. You know, 20 years ago... When a group, a band would say, "Hey, can we do a video to support a, a song or a single?" You know, you're talking like a minimum five to seven thousand dollar budget just to do a video, and mm-hmm. it wasn't very cost effective. But now, with today's technology and with a lot of folks going to YouTube, it's just another way of of, of promoting the band, marketing the band. You know, visual visual marketing. As a matter of fact, with with this High Fidelity album, we're gonna our plan is to release four videos from this album. So for four mm-hmm. separate songs, we're going to be doing videos for each of those songs. I, I know that you uh, work with Airplay Direct, so let me mm-hmm. ask you, because there seems to be a strategy that some bands release a song at a time instead of releasing a whole album at once. Uh, right. Can you walk me through that strategy? We choose to, to do it the old-fashioned way, or... We kind of do a modification. We don't, we don't, uh, I know a lot of labels are just releasing singles and eventually, you know, they'll, they'll release a full album. We're old school in that, you know, we've heard from a lot of folks who say, hey, you know, 
we don't like you know we don't like just getting singles at a time. We want to buy you know we want to support the artists. And when we go to a festival, we want to buy the whole CD. A lot of times mm-hmm. these days, artists will say, "Well, we don't have the CD yet, but you can you know download our 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 latest single or stream it." And a lot of of today's bluegrass fans, especially when it comes to traditional bluegrass, they're still an older demographic who still would rather buy you know a CD something that they can touch, something that they can autograph, um, you know, at a festival. And so we, so we do it slightly different. We, we, we will release one, maybe two songs before the street date, but rarely or never will we release like three songs, more than, more than two songs ahead of an album release. So like, for instance, with this High Fidelity album, we released the first single, um, The Southbound Train. We released that in March. So that was uh, about two and a half months before the album release date, which is this Friday. And when we release the album on Friday, we'll also be releasing the second single from the project, which is it's going to be the title track, Banjo Players Blues. That's how we do it. We'll, usually we'll, we'll, we will release one song um, ahead of the street date, but rarely, and sometimes two, but rarely. Usually it's just one song that we'll release ahead of the street date, just because it's kind of like a teaser or a little a taster of what, what, what's to come. Well, I guess there are a lot of award seasons out there, you know, for IBMA and Americana and Grammys, and, you know, they all have their requirement for when they're released. So right. you get together with the band and you all strategize and when is the best time to release. You, you don't want it to be too early in the season so that by the time the voting comes along people may have forgotten right uh, you know what is your mindset on that kind of well we you know we we cater to our artists um you know we give them our suggestion but if they really want to release something to to fit it in you know for the award eligibility then you know we say that's fine I, we just tell them hey if you want this to happen this is when you need to release the album because mm-hmm. a lot of times, you know, a lot, what well, I've found that, you know, a lot of times a lot of folks want to, you know, get, get the album in or get a, a song in, you know, just a few weeks before the eligibility cutoff, which is with Ivy May, it's the end of March. But I have found that usually if you're releasing it that close to the deadline, that's not enough time for folks to listen to it and really get behind it. So I say, right. if you want to release an album that's eligible for the 2020 award season, it's best to release it like in the fall, really October, November. So then, mm-hmm. you know, if you release it in October, November, it starts picking up steam through the Getting holidays the in January, February. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. As opposed to trying to get it out in March, which, you know, by the time you know, you get the first ballot, and, and, you know, the album or the song may not have really quite gotten the, the, tra- the traction that you need. So I say if you want to release it, you know, in time for the uh, awards, it's best to do it three to four months before that March 30th cutoff date. Okay, Mark, say um, I have a band and I'm out on the bluegrass circuit and I'm doing pretty well and I, I think I'm good enough to, you know, have a record, a CD, mm-hmm. whatever is mm-hmm. the term you want. 
Now, how do I get, what is a record contract? How do I get it? Do I come uh-huh. and see you, or do you hear about me and scout my band, and you approach my, me? Mm-hmm. How does mm-hmm. that work? I know that's well, pretty basic, you know, uh, right. Well, a band, if they if they certainly feel they're they're good enough and, and competent enough to to you know mail us a, a a copy of their project, their latest project, um, by all means, you know, we 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 try to make it a point to to listen to everything that's sent us. Um, you know, we don't. <laughs> We don't get it and throw it in the trash. Um, we, we make it a point to listen to everything that's sent us. Now, I will say that it's very, very, very rare that someone will send us a, a album, I guess these days, via a, a, a download link. It's very rare that I'll get something and listen to it and say, wow, um, I need to check this band out, um, sight unseen. Um, very, I don't think since I've uh, worked at Rebel, we've had a, an experience like that where a group has set something where we have no knowledge of who they are, have no little about them, and yet have been so impressed by what we hear that we say, yes, let's, 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 let's sign this group. Very rarely does that happen uh, with any label. Um, usually in our case, it's um, groups that... Well, you know how, how bluegrass is, where there's a lot of transition. You know, someone may leave a group, and then, you know, a half a year later has started another group with different members. And right. um, that's usually how it works. That, that person may reach out to us and say, hey, you know, um, uh, you know I've left such and such group, but I've started a new group, and we've got a new project. And, you know, that, that helps get their foot in the door if it's name recognition. Mm-hmm. Um, mm, so usually it seems to be like that, where, where you know, a, 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 a musician who's left one group has, has either gone off on his own or has started another group and has, you know, sent us a, a copy of, the proj- of his project or their project. And we say, yeah, we like this. Let's, let's do something. So when you I decide mean, that, mm-hmm. that you want to do something, what is the standard contract? Is it one project? One- Three albums? Mm-hmm. Is it three years? Uh, what does it get mm-hmm. you to sign right. a contract with a record company? And what do you, in re- return, get from the band? Sure. Well, a lot of labels do minimum two to three album deals. Ours is strictly an album-per-album basis. Um, mm. We don't do more than one album uh, deal. You know, our, our theory is, or our belief is, you know, if the label's happy with what we did on their record and we're happy working with this artist, we'd love to record you again. We'd love to work with you again. If, if, if you know, you feel the same way, let's, let's sign another contract for another record. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so that's how we do it. You know, a lot of labels, especially major labels, will, will tie an artist up for, for three to five albums and... You know, you run the risk of, hey, if, if something happens, if the artist gets unhappy or if the label gets unhappy or is not happy with a certain release or whatever reason, something just or, or, or you know, half the group leaves, then, you know, you're stuck with, you know, two or three albums left on a contract. We prefer just doing one album at a time, um, just, okay, you know, that, just signing album per album basis. And that, that mm-hmm. sounds like a, a good plan to me. Now, what does this include? 
recording, publicity, photography. I mean, mm-hmm. do you and who has a say on what what happens? Who determines right. the recording studio, the engineer, the producer? Uh, right. Who, who's in charge of all of those different things? If if it's a if it's a young group, um, I mean it it really it, it's really in the in the control of the artist, even if it's a young band. Um, you know, as long as they don't want to record um, in a national studio that costs you know two thousand dollars a day. You know, as long as it's reasonable, we're we're open to wherever a group wants to record. You know, we set a budget. We we agree to a budget. Um, usually, it's 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 you know we pay the recording costs. Um, we work out a separate arrangement for like uh, promotion and publicity. Yeah, it, we we agree to re- uh, record the record. We we pay the recording expenses, the engineer and stuff like that. And then the project once the project recoups. And when I say recoups, you know, once it's sold uh, a certain amount, you know, it is is paid for itself. Then the artist starts receiving royalties for every record sold. So, so whose responsibility is it? Uh, you're going out and you're publicizing it, and you know, getting uh, interviews done about it. So you're publicizing it, and they're mm-hmm. at the festivals or at their gigs, and they're selling mm-hmm. it. Uh, what if right. a band can't sell any? I mean, who assumes that responsibility for that money? Is that just okay? It didn't work out, and we're out this money, or are right. they? Right. Well, yeah, it is. It basically ultimately lies with the label. You know, if the label agrees to put in five thousand dollars to record the album, the album is recorded, but you know, the band breaks up, or or record, or or plays a few dates and then breaks up, or or for whatever reason. And that's another thing. We're we're not going to sign a band that is looking at doing this as, as a part-time job. You know, we're looking uh-huh. at bands that are committed to to doing this uh, full-time. Um, not groups that you know will you know maybe try to get thirty or forty dates a year, but have a second job. We're looking for groups that are committed to you know minimum eighty to ninety dates a year. And and actively, you know, getting more dates because right. we're we, we're not interested in signing a band that's that that's just going to play limited dates. We want a group that's out there, you know, uh, full time. I hear on TV an artist say, "Well, um, this tour is in support of the album, so the whole mm-hmm. tour really is to, you know, promote the album and to get the mon- money back for that." Is that that's the whole purpose of a tour, or, or is the record support the people coming out, or is it a, a two-way street there? Well, it's a two-way street. I would say it's a two-way street. Uh, you know, a lot of bluegrass groups are are not just like touring in the summer. They're they're playing. They're trying to play you know all year long. So yes, they may be uh, touring, you know, or tra- or playing during the summer to support a release, but. Like you know, we're we try to get albums out before the the festival season kicks in, you know. Um, but that's mm-hmm. not to say we'll still release projects in the middle of the summer. You know, this high fidelity release is in June, so you know, festival season in normal times would have started a couple months ago. Uh, right. But of course, you still have you still have what two 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 to three still good strong months of of uh, festival season. 
Yes, this pandemic has really kicked everyone in the head. The artists, it the has. record companies, the mm-hmm. venues, uh, you know, the the fans, every, everybody has suffered from this. It has. Uh, it, it has. Is there anything that you're doing uh, to deal with that kind of thing? I mean, well, you know, this <laughs> this is where having our music up digitally, like on iTunes and Spotify, this is where it's actually helped. Because with a lot of folks, you know, quarantined or, or shut in at home, uh, they still want to get their music. So now it's easier than ever to, you know, stream or download your favorite seldom seen song, your favorite Ralph Stanley song. You know, you just go to your phone or your, your laptop and, you know, get, get it that way. Five years ago, when when CD sales started to decline and and the rise of digital started going up, I mean there was I would say there's there was panic um, amongst um, the bluegrass industry. Like you know, what does this mean for for festivals and folks buying CDs and you know what's what's going to happen to us? And we've definitely seen a, a, a transition in the last few years to folks. I mean, there's still a lot of CD sales, don't get me wrong. You know, a lot of folks in bluegrass, especially traditional bluegrass, still, like I said earlier, want, want something physical to touch. They want something physical to, to, to buy. Um, and they can, you know, they can go to county sales or, or go to Amazon and order, or order the CD off of Amazon. But other than those two places, you know, maybe with the exception of a couple other outlets, it's nearly impossible to, to, to buy, purchase a, a a hard copy bluegrass CD, but mm-hmm. but with uh, Spotify and Apple Music and iTunes and and Amazon MP3, you know you can certainly get our music and and music from other labels almost instantly by a click of a few buttons. So in that well, sense, it's it's pretty amazing. Well, let's talk about the cars. Not that I've bought a new car in ten years, but uh, some mm-hmm. of the cars aren't even having CD players in them anymore. Right. That's right. So that's uh, that's big. But now, speaking of cars, one thing cars do have now is the option to purchase like a SiriusXM subscription, mm-hmm. which uh, can't underestimate the power of SiriusXM. You know, you have a, a full 24-hour, seven-day-a-week station devoted to bluegrass music. And, yes. um, and the monies that uh, artists and labels get from the music being played on on Sirius XM is is a godsend to be honest with you because um, you mean sound exchange money sound exchange yes mm-hmm. yes sound exchange monies mm-hmm. do you, do you know how much uh, <coughs> a record gets for one play close to four dollars every time a song is played on Sirius XM goes to it, the artist it, it, it's split fifty fifty between the artist and the label wow that is that that is if artist records for a label mm-hmm. so yeah so the label gets half and the artist gets half and is that because <clears throat> of spotify or is that because of a contractual thing between you and the artist i well no this was uh, this was sound exchange when sound exchange was created about what was it about 10 15 years ago it was right. created specifically to help out the artists and the labels. The music is owned by the label, 
um, you know, Stan Exchange felt it was um, necessary. Uh, it was it was it was uh, a right that artists should get monies too for their music being played. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so yeah, both the labels and the artists benefit, and and the publishers get the mon- and monies too, although a smaller amount. Well, they get the standard you know royalty rate. Right. But but Sound Exchange has um has it set up where not only do the artists and the labels and the publishers get paid, but they get paid in a timely fashion too. Sirius XM may pay a larger portion of Sound Exchange, but that should be also be paid by any terrestrial radio station those pay is playing your music, correct? Well no, no, not terrestrial radio. Oh, really? terrestrial, radio, terrestrial radio does not pay sound exchange, or sound exchange okay. monies are not distributed through terrestrial radio. It's internet radio. So satellite radio, internet radio, and um, like you know, um, I forget what it, it's it's specifically called, but like you know, you have your cable package at home, and and your cable package comes with a bunch of music channels, mm-hmm. you know, on your TV. I forget what that's called specifically, but but you know, um, anytime a, a bluegrass song is played on one of those you know TV music channels, that counts too. That's that's distributed through Sound Exchange, but not that's not terrestrial radio, not terrestrial you're right. radio. You're right. I, you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Well, that's all good news there. Um, there is a fight in Congress for for terrestrial radio to start paying. You know, like uh, like like digital or internet radio does, but. Obviously, terrestrial radio is fighting it tooth and nail. They don't want to pay any more money than they have to. But but there's 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 in Congress there's a legislation where they're trying to definitely trying to get terrestrial radio to pay up their their share. But of course, terrestrial radio is saying, hey, we're, what we're doing is promotion. You know, we're helping out the labels and the artists by promoting their music by playing it on the air. So we should be exempt from having to pay them on top of promoting them. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And and that fight continues today, right? That fight continues, yes. Mm-hmm. Now, yes, I saw that, that uh, Rebel had won an award from Airplay Direct. You, you download or made available how many albums or your whole collection or... Explain that one. Right, to well, well, the folks at um, Airplay Direct were... Very, very kind and um, gave us this year's, I guess every year they do an um, Iconic Innovator Award where oh. they um, hand out an award to a, um, a label head or a label that is, has done, you know, a lot for, for music. Um, so this year we, we were selected the uh, 2020 Airplay Direct Iconic Innovator Award. Um, so yeah, we were <clears throat> we were tickled to receive that. Um, I guess as part of the award, um, we get like um, a full year's worth of um, uh, what do you call it? Um, yeah, basically we're able to to upload our catalog on Airplay Direct, and um, yeah, they we send out. Uh, I guess we'll be sending out monthly um, press releases. You know, we're promoting like ten new releases every month, whether mm. they're current releases or catalog releases. So, obviously, with the catalog that we have, we're we're you know we're taking advantage of that. And 
uh, uncovering, unearthing a lot of those old albums that have been, you know, languishing in the vaults, but making it, uh, make, finally making it available to, to DJs. And, and so, how, many, how deep is your album or your catalog? Do you know off the top of your head? Um, it's about uh, around a little over 400 titles total um, of those 400 I would say about half of them are available digitally. Mm-hmm. So we still have we still have about 200 titles that are you know were just released on LP and have you know haven't been re-released. But, and, and how do you decide when you go in the vault which ones you're going to do? I mean, do you have a little committee that says, "Gee, we haven't put out you know X group uh-huh. recently," or? Or this is, was a real good seller for us in that year. Right. What are your What are your criteria right. for selecting those? Well, I would say, you know, we we first look at albums. You know, if there's like a historic album or a classic album that hasn't been released on CD or released digitally, we'll make it a point to to re-release it on on disc or or digitally. Um, mm-hmm. I would say I would say we've got just about all the albums that we feel were were classic albums. We feel like we've got all those covered now. Like you know, I would say there's no album in our vault that we you know we deem as must-have albums that are are not available digitally. Um, but at the same time, you know, we still have we still have a few Ralph Stanley albums, for instance that are just LP only. We're, we're talking about like doing a second Ralph Stanley box set. You know, about 20 years ago, we released um, our first Ralph Stanley box set, which covered the years of, of 1971 and 1973. And that was what many you know, folks consider Ralph's, you know, classic uh, era, you know, outside of the Stanley Brothers. You know, because that, that was the group, that, you know, those were the albums that had a young Keith Whitley and a young Ricky Skaggs and Royley Centers. Yeah, so those first five or six albums that Ralph recorded for us, we gathered all those up and put them on that um, four-CD box set. But we're, we're talking about doing like a second follow-up box set that would cover the albums, you know, after that period. Like some of the last albums that Keith did when he was with Ralph's band and, and some of those early albums with Charlie Sizemore. Because I don't think it's to put those albums out individually as standalone CDs um, in this day and age. Uh, I don't think it would be cost effective. Better to 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 put all of them together into a four or five CD box set and really you know really make it an attractive package where we have like um just like the first box set where we have like a nice thirty page book you know talking about that period and. And having you know maybe a hundred or so songs um, in one place, like a four Wonderful. or five CD box set. So mm-hmm. that's what we're looking at right now. That that may still be another year or two away before we get that out. But I think that's the more logical way to go, as opposed to just taking each of these individual albums and re-releasing them on CD. Because you know mm-hmm. you may sell you may sell five or six hundred, maybe even a thousand on some of them, but They'll just get lost after a while, so I think it makes sense to to gather all that stuff up and do like a second box set. Right. Well, let me ask you about how I guess security of 
where do you store this stuff? And all those tapes, those master tapes, are mm-hmm. they backed up somewhere? On, on and how are they backed up? And are things up mm-hmm. on the cloud? How do you do right. storage and right. security for that? Right. Well, the actual first off, the actual master tapes. These, you know, the the original tapes from the from the seventies. Um, you know, that were recorded on, you know, 8-inch, 10-inch reels. Mm-hmm. We have those here in our office. We have a, um, we have a climate-controlled vault, um, made a, a cinder block vault, uh, climate-controlled, where we keep all those um, tapes secure in a climate-controlled area. We've done an okay job with, with transferring a lot of that stuff to digital. Um, there's still quite a bit that we haven't yet. I mean, it's a long process. The essential albums have been transferred and are preserved. Um, mm-hmm. but, but, but all the tapes, like I said, are in a climate-controlled vault. So that's, that's a good start. At least we have, we have that going for us. But right. eventually our goal is to, uh, is to, get, is to get everything um, transferred. Now, all the albums that we do have available on CD or digitally – we have copied those or we have ripped those albums um, and have saved them uh, on, on hard drives. So, yes, the stuff that's available digitally, um, we do have access to it um, via like a hard drive or, or a flash drive. Well, did you ever think when uh, your dad first got involved in this that this record business would go beyond just promotion of of a band or music that it would now get into, you know, preservation of uh, mm-hmm. of a musical culture. Right. It's gone well, far beyond what you started off. Right. At. Right. Well, you know, we've been we've been blessed to to be around for for sixty years now. You know, Rebel got right. started in nineteen sixty. We're we're celebrating our sixty sixtieth year, our sixth wow. decade this this year. So, Congratulations. Um, thank you. So yeah, it, um, never would have imagined that uh, we'd still be still be doing this and and still be relevant, you know, because a lot of a lot of companies that have been around this long, you know, maybe they lose their edge or something happens. But uh, I'd like to think that we're we're still relevant and still putting out, you know, top quality traditional bluegrass, and and folks are still liking what we put out. It's you know it's it's hard to do in this day and age is to is to continue to stay relevant and important, um, especially when you know maybe traditional bluegrass isn't as um, I don't know as popular as it was. I mean you know traditional bluegrass definitely enjoyed a uh, resurgence when the uh, Oh Brother Where Art Thou movie came out, but that was twenty years ago now. Right, and um, you know, you have a lot of groups out there that are doing more progressive stuff that are, are catering to the uh, the younger crowd, and you think, well, if if people are going gravitating towards that, you know, and the older folks like the traditional, but they're they're dying off, you know, where does that leave us? You know, what's what's going to happen to Rebel Records? But um, it always seems that it, this music goes in in cycles, where. You know, maybe it may dip a little bit, but then, you know, it comes back around. You know, people gravitate back towards it. Like, oh, yeah, you know, traditional bluegrass, man, this stuff is good. We just keep putting out what we like and what we think is good, and hopefully, you know, a lot of consumers and folks feel the same way. So, and, and fortunately, we've been, <laughs> I feel like we've been right a lot of times. We've, we've had some misses, too, no doubt, but 
you know, I feel like what we do um, hits home with a lot of folks. And that was Miss Katie Daly talking with Rebel Records owner Mark Freeman. For more information about Rebel Records on the internet, go to rebelrecords.com. Bluegrass Stories is hosted on SoundCloud.com and can be streamed on SoundCloud, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and katydaily.com. As always, thanks for listening to Bluegrass Stories. Thank you.